Welcome to the Roboticist Chronicles, an ARC Specialties podcast, where we get into the nuts and bolts of robots, automation, and the implications of an evolving machine workforce. Hello and welcome to the podcast today, everyone. Joining me here in the Market Scale Studios is Dan Alford, the president of ARC Specialties. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So today we are talking about the history of ARC Specialties, and this is really a, uh, a from the garage to now being an innovative company that, that is worldwide, a global company, um, kind of like the Apple, I suppose, of robotics maybe. But um, you know, starting out in a garage, getting your start there. So today we're just going to explore that story and talk about the lessons that you learned along the way um, and maybe some, uh, some successes, some bumps in the road and that sort of thing. So We've had both. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's important to have both, right? Because you learn sometimes from those, uh, from those mistakes and those things that, that, that happen along the way. So tell me about those early years. How did you first get started? What, what was the first project that you worked on at, at, for, for Arc Specialties? I'm going to rewind it further than that. All right. Uh, uh, I think that uh, having an entrepreneur in the family causes the kids to at least consider it as, as, as an option. And, and so my father was an electrical contractor. And so I saw that he could run a business. And so when I had the opportunity, I jumped on it. Uh, first thing I did was buy a welding machine, and we were starting to weld small components. And But my strength is building automation. And so soon afterwards, we started tackling interesting projects. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, a hot tap. And a hot tap means you're trying to connect a pipe to a pipe without turning off the machine that you're connecting to. In this case, it was a plutonium refining plant. And I've always thought that if uh, they had known that it was a 25-year-old in his garage building this machine, it might not have gone well. But it went so well that, that uh, years later, we, we repeated the process. That's really fantastic. That that sounds like a serious project, like a, like a big deal. I, I don't know a ton, but I know enough to know that when you say plutonium, that sounds very serious to me. Uh, yes, fortunately for us, there's only one one plant that I'm aware of in America that's, that's that's doing this processing, and so we had to do the hot tap. So the machine kept running. Uh, we had to cut a piece out and and not drop it down the the stack, and uh, and the whole thing was radioactive and ninety foot up in the air and below freezing. Other than that, it was an easy job. <laughs> So, so you started off doing this, and this was something that you were really just doing on the side at first. Is that right? Yeah, for the first uh, seven years, it was on the side. Uh, and ironically, the my, my last job that I had, my last real job before I became self-unemployed was uh, I got it through initially uh, subcontracting mm-hmm. uh, as our specialties. And then, I, then I went full-time with them. And then uh, when that company started to uh, fail, I uh, just went full-time at ARC. That's that's incredible. Now, what were some of the challenges of, of doing this on the side for so many years? You have to have some kind of support right behind you because uh, it, it's not always easy sometimes having that, that side gig, I suppose, that uh, keeps you awfully busy, I would suppose. Um, as long as you don't watch too much television, it, 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 it's just a matter of time. Uh, as a side job, it was supplemental income. Actually, it was easier then. When it got hard was when it was full time because all of a sudden, you know, no salary to back me up. Uh, and people ask me what you need to start a business. I say a supportive wife. So fortunately for me, my, my wife uh, uh, made a good living and she's very supportive. And when I proposed this venture to her, she was uh, all in. So you're obviously skilled at what you do and, and kind of the, the trade that you know, but 
How did that also apply to running a business? Did you have any kind of uh, business know-how when you first started out, or was that kind of a learning process that you dove headfirst into? Oh, indeed. That, that has been the hard part. you know. And if you're going to start a technical company, you need both, both pieces of it. But uh, I had taken a couple of classes in colleges, and uh, that was useful, but I'd learned by example. And like I said, the, uh, the last real job I had, uh, I saw mismanagement. And uh, negative role models are beneficial, too. And so I learned a lot of things not to do in business. Uh, And then as long as you keep your mistakes commensurate with the size of your business, you'll survive. So while we were small, we made small mistakes and, and we survived. So what were some of those things that maybe you learned a lot from in those early years and, and some, some things that maybe some of the places where you learned the most, I suppose? Uh, my most glaring error was uh, after, I'd say, year two or three and forgotten, we made money. We were, we were quite pleased. At that point, we had half a dozen employees. And so to celebrate at the end of the year, I gave out bonuses, you know, depleted the, the checking account. And I quit asking customers for progress payments. Okay, it's pretty obvious in retrospect, but the reason we were doing well is because we were working off progress payments, which eliminated the need for going to banks and all the paperwork and all the time associated with that. So it took about two months for uh, me to realize what I'd done wrong. And uh, what I did right is I called my vendors and I explained to them what a what a huge mistake I'd made and how I was not going to pay in a timely manner. And one of one of the best guys was a fellow named Marshall Geddes. And I remember calling Marshall and telling him what I did. And he said, thanks for calling. How's your wife? All I had to do was explain to them what I'd done wrong and assure them that I was going to fix it. And indeed we did. So we worked out of the problem and I reverted back to the successful business model that we had used the year before. And now we're to this day, we're still working with progress payments. Now, there's a lot to, to learn and to glean from that one particular story. But one of the big things that stands out to me in particular is just the way that uh, it's important. And, and I think I see this just in interacting with you. It's important for you to build relationships with people so that then you can have these honest conversations. And that's really a tenet of a lot of things you do. Oh, it's essential. You know, whether it's my vendors or my customers, it's a team. And we need to know each other, need to understand each other. And I, I think that, that that's key to it all. In fact, at this point in my career, my biggest job is to uh, keep all my uh, employees happy. So after 10 years, I get a Rolex, you know, and, and because I want that continuity. I don't want a new team. And my customers want that continuity, too. You know, once the project managers build a machine, they're saddled with it for the rest of their lives. <laughs> But so that continuity uh, is obviously something that really manifests itself in terms of great customer service and the ability to interact well with the people that are your clients, that is your customer base. And in kind of taking that extra effort that you do to reward employees, that certainly helps on the backside as well, just in their interaction with their customers. It it works and it's the right thing to do. And I I love nothing more than going to a plant and having the privilege of being able to go in the back door because we're an essential part of many of these customers' success. You know, we'll we'll create some machine that'll change a company. I remember putting one in in China years and years and years ago, and I didn't return for, I think, six or eight years. And when I came back, the plant had quadrupled in size. Wow. And I said, what is this? And they said, based on the success of our first product, which, you know, which I was helping with, uh, the government had granted them the right to quadruple the size of the factory. And that felt good. Yeah, I'd say so. What, what are some of the other maybe 
benchmarks along the way of maybe notable moments that you remember uh, where you hit you know certain levels of growth you know between starting off in a in a garage and now where you have what is it over over sixty employees and your worldwide global company. What are some of the the benchmarks that are along the way that you remember that stand out in your mind? Mm. Uh, I guess buying buildings. So that's uh, <laughs> you always remember when you uh, when you put down millions of dollars on buildings. So we're now up to uh, six buildings in two different states. So those are kind of the uh, the markers, you know, because you know you're growing. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, let's say about six years ago, we needed more room. It's, it's pretty standard for us, and uh, so we bought a couple more uh, at that point. And that. that that and I think when we kind of crested the hill and we got to be a big enough com- company to be able to attract really the top talent. Mm-hmm. You know, initially, you know, you had to kind of convince people of my vision and then get them to work in some small shop and some substandard office. But now the, the buildings look pretty much first rate. So that, that has really simplified uh, my job as far as getting new folks. Did you ever have moments where you thought, is this going to work? You know, what what are we doing here? That kind of thing. And what was it like when you finally kind of hit that point where you're like, yeah, we're doing this thing. Like, like this is this is working. This is going to make it, and we're making money, and this is a profitable business. No, that, that's a recurring uh, nightmare. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you how we deal with it is is being flexible. You know, uh, our our business model is capitalize on opportunity and exceed expectations, and so. For example, one segment of the industry that we're really big in is uh, sour service for oil wells because oil now can no longer touch steel in most cases. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, you could you could uh, just pump oil through steel pipes, steel valves. You can't do that any longer. So we, we got into the business of putting corrosion-resistant coatings in valve. I built 600 of these machines, and that's great. And then that part of the business uh, starts to drop. Yeah. So at that point, we... You know, we have to look elsewhere, and that's then. Then we start welding armored vehicles, or we start welding uh, extruder screws for the plastic industry, or we start working in the aerospace industry. And I'm a chronic optimist, so every time we get into a new industry, I'm convinced that that's going to keep us busy for. But no, everything's cyclical. You need to be nimble. Mm. That's a really interesting point. Just having that that mindset, I suppose, of being nimble. How did you build that into the overall structure of the company, just to make sure that you're able to be adaptable to whatever comes your way next and whatever uh, changes happen to the industry? Oh, that's easy. Uh, what you do is you hire people that have attention deficit disorder, <laughs> you know? and they. Uh, I tell people it's a virtue, you know, because it allows them to multitask. It allows them to be interested in a lot of different stuff. And so we've got a lot of people that are always looking for new challenges. And so when we bring in something unique, uh, uh, it's fun to watch the engineers fight over it. That's really funny. Uh, you just have to make sure you don't have like 10 almost finished products, right? You got to get them all the way to the, the fi- that's my problem anyways, with uh, with my lack of ability to, to keep my attention on one thing at a time is I, I halfway finish every product, uh, almost every project. But, well, uh, <laughs> if your progress payments depend on it, I think you would. Uh, there you, you go. Remain there, focused. There you go. That that calls back to a previous, <laughs> a previous question and a previous answer. Uh, how has manufacturing changed just in the time that you've been in the industry? How have you seen the manufacturing industry in the United States change, and has that market um, evolved? And have you evolved along with it? Yeah, it's uh, started out great, got bad, and it's come back. Uh, 
I mean, I got out of school in 79, right? And so back then, 30% of our gross domestic product was manufacturing and mm-hmm. only 10% was um, financial services. And then by 2008, that had flopped. You know, manufacturing had all been offshored. It was no longer cool. People didn't want to be in it. You know, that was the dirty part of the world and everybody wanted to be in financial services. We see where that got the economy. Yeah. And that's that's a common thread in all uh, recessions around the world in history is you can't rely on a service-based economy. And so that was kind of frustrating for me. But there has been a renaissance, and I see it all over the place. People are onshoring again. And if they want to work here in America, they have to work efficiently because we have high labor rates. And I like that. I like our standard of living. And so what we do is allow people to make the big bucks here and yet compete with the low labor cost countries. And so we're part of this this renaissance now. And... uh, I'm I'm enjoying that. How did you guide and steer the Arc Specialty ship through those more lean years where uh, it seemed like manufacturing might be uh, kind of taking a dive for good in the United States? Ah, you just have to look outside of your your field. You know, being in Houston, uh, we end up with a whole lot of oil field work. Mm-hmm. But what we found is the same techniques that we use in the oil field apply all over the place. Uh, we're, we're applying exactly the same materials to the outside of rock bits and to the insides of extruder screws. Uh, and so what we do is we don't hesitate to te- take technology and transfer it to entirely new industries. Uh, you know, as long as our market share is low, we, we can find an industry that needs us. And I believe there's a, another industry that you're starting to push into a little bit as well. I don't know if, are we ready to talk about that and, and talk a little bit more about kind of the, what the next phase maybe for our specialties is? Well, there, uh, what you're talking about is surgery. And uh, and what the problem in, in surgery is, is accuracy. The surgeons are delighted if they can hold plus or minus a degree, plus or minus two millimeters. In my world, if you can't hit tolerances better than that, you bankrupt. Mm. And so... Uh, we're hoping to apply some of the industrial technology that we've developed to uh, surgery. So that's all. We're just starting now. It's a little premature, but actually I've got uh, three other projects. Any any one of these four could create a company. We're starting to get into thermal spray with robotics because it's a wonderful technique to apply metals, but it's a horrible technique for humans. Interesting. Uh, We're also starting to do robotic machining. And so robots are kind of encroaching on the machine tools uh, capabilities. That, that's a fun one because a robot is more flexible, less expensive. It doesn't do everything a machine tool does, but we're finding that we can uh, overlap quite a bit. And, and then finally, we've got uh, using artificial intelligence to uh, weld pipe. You got to understand I've been doing this since 79, right? And, and all that time, I've refused to weld pipe with a standard V-butt weld because they're too irregular. Uh, And so what we've decided is using AI, we can map this and then create a huge program, you know, maybe thousands of lines long Mm -hmm. to optimize the weld process as we're welding around this irregular joint. So my rule of never taking these jobs, uh, we've, we've now found a way. That's really fascinating. Now, back in that uh, garage where you first started, did you ever picture this, you know, ever picture going into, you know, doing surgeries or, or things along those lines? Or uh, did you just kind of take the next the next path that was presented and, and it followed it and led you here? Uh, I would never be so arrogant as to. <laughs> uh, 
but also, you know, that was a little one-man army back then. Mm -hmm. And I was working, I was selling, then designing, and then building, and then programming, and then installing. And then I worked myself out of a job, and I'd have to go sell again. So now I've got a, a very formidable team of engineers. So it doesn't surprise me at all that we can do this stuff with the team that I built. No, but in the beginning, no, there's no way we could have tackled this. You still have a, a lot of passion for what you do. And, you know, starting back in 1979 to now, you've, you've been doing this for, uh, for a while. What, what is it that you love so much about what you get to do every day that gets you out of bed and, and still has you so excited and passionate about something that you do 40 years later? Well, I still like building things. And, mm -hmm. and, and the only thing better than building something is building something that builds something. Because then you can turn it on and watch it make products. And the other thing I really like is people. And, and so uh, I'm putting machines in all over the world that uh, create jobs for folks in 20-something 20, 20 countries. And that feels good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you can hear more about uh, some of these concepts and some of these ideas in our other podcasts that we've done. So if you're uh, curious about robots creating jobs, we tackled that topic in a previous podcast a little bit. And so um, there's a lot that uh, you can learn from previous episodes. And um, as we explore just this uh, this idea of who our specialties is and, and where you've come from to this point. And I think one of the things that stands out to me is it's always been... Um, organic growth, I suppose, for, for you guys, that you wasn't, um, you didn't go in search of things that weren't there. You saw what the, where the market was going and kind of took that next step. And it's always been something where, um, where you followed what was next, I suppose. Right. And, and that's the one recommendation I'd have for anyone starting a business. Uh, in, in many ways, it's better to start small. Mm -hmm. And I realize that's not the way the, the big guys do it. They, they go buy companies. But, you know, for the rest of us, uh, if you start small, you can afford it. You, and like I said, your, your mistakes are commensurate with the size, so you can tolerate your own mistakes. But then with organic growth, that means uh, you don't have a bank or, or venture capitalist uh, slicing off 10% at the end of each year. So if you do happen to make a bit of money, you can buy another building, buy some more machine tools, hire some more people. So uh, I, I tell the new guys that I hire, I said, you, you need to appreciate the fact that, you know, all, all of us old guys built this without other people's money. Yeah. That's a great point. What would you go back and tell uh, 25-year-old Dan now uh, if you could go back and, and tell him one thing or warn him about something or give him a piece of advice? Or did you think that uh, maybe the journey of learning things along the way is, is worth it and you wouldn't you wouldn't change a thing about what you knew back then? Well, it's like a new novel. You know, you kind of want to skip ahead to the end, but no, you don't. It, it, it's the journey. So I, I think I'd go back and tell myself it'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, it'll be okay, and uh, thank your wife for uh, her patience. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. Well, Dan Alford, thank you so much for uh, being here, and it's been a pleasure just getting to explore a little bit more about the history of ARC Specialties and learning about the journey by which uh, you ended up here. Thanks for your time. 